Good morning. Good morning. You guys are awake? Wake up. We're reading the book of Daniel. It's going to be fun. We are uh, in this second chapter of Daniel, and part of what I want us to realize and try to paint a picture is that Daniel is, it's almost like he's, he's in a drama trying to unveil to us the reality of things and to try to get us into this sort of scene. Uh, some of you may have seen in person or online uh, the play Hamilton, this huge you know, cultural phenomenon, uh, this Broadway hit that combines Broadway with hip-hop and rap. And one of the most hilarious characters in that play is played by King George. So this takes place during the Revolutionary Era. And King George is, of course, the British king who is over this entire British empire, and it's the ones that the founding fathers and American colonies are revolting against. And the portrayal of King George is one who has all of this ridiculous pomp and circumstance, and the way that he sings his songs is just silly and foolish. And a big part of his chorus is just da-da-da-da. Like he just sings that over and over. And part of, he's trying to court the Americans to stay with him. And he says, to remind you of my love, I will kill your friends and family. And so he has this like, foolish portrayal. And of course, taking place in 1770s, 1780s, and then us watching this, knowing where this is going to go, it adds to just how foolish King George looks. This is empire can't keep these colonies in line. Alexander Hamilton, in contrast, is portrayed as this courageous, unstoppable, person with an obsession against uh, oppression and then an obsession about his own legacy and how he will be remembered. But I want us to try to get into that mindset of looking at Nebuchadnezzar as this king, as this king of kings of sorts, and what would it be like for us to look at not just worldly empires, but the enemies of sin and death in the same way? What would it look like to be able to be obsessed with the kingdom of God? To know that there really is only one kingdom of God. There's really only one king. What should that do to us and how we relate to those around us? Let's try to get into that drama. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you that you are the Lord of lords, that you have no competitor, and that you have promised to be among us. Lord, we thank you for being able to come into your presence, being able to confess our sin and hear the word of forgiveness. And now we ask, Lord, that you would uh, live up to your promise once again, that your spirit would be powerful, that you would comfort those who are brokenhearted, that you would challenge those who are stubborn and hard-hearted, Lord, open us to your word 
that we would trust and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm convinced that part of reading the book of Daniel is understanding the context, the context of what is going on. And so, in chapter 1, you may remember, tragedy strikes Israel, and they are led out of the promised land, out of where all of their hopes and dreams were by this Gentile king, Nebuchadnezzar. But in verse 2, we're like given a secret of the kingdom back in chapter 1. Verse 2 says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah. And so there is this, we're in on the secret. Not unlike King George, us knowing King George is going to fall. We're in on the secret. That everything that the world knows in that time, everything that makes sense in Babylon, says that Babylon and its gods are most powerful, but the readers of Daniel and Daniel himself know that the Lord gave Israel into the hands of Babylon. And so the context is, or the the implied readership, is those receiving this kind of secret. He's trying to comfort those who have just had their hopes and dreams dashed. And he's trying to portray to us what would it look like to have a faith in the midst of exile. To have a faith in the midst of tragedy. Alright? So please don't forget this, this context. Who he's writing to. We can kind of read Daniel and maybe it seems like interesting literature. It's like travel literature where you get Israelites going to this exotic land and they're going to figure out how to climb the social status and the social ladder and Daniel ends up in this chapter with all this power. That's not what's going on at all. This is literature from a people that have been exiled and they need to know how to live in the midst of that that exile and what God is up to. And so thinking again of this portrayal of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, the first thing I want us to try to get at is seeing that I think we're actually supposed to laugh at Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. So I want to think about first laughing at the human kingdom, trusting in the divine kingdom, and then what would it mean to act out of those two things? All right, what do I mean by laugh? Well, part of, part of chapter 2 we didn't hear read, read, but Nebuchadnezzar is portrayed. Remember, this is Nebuchadnezzar like Alexander the Great type level of, of emperor, and he has all this power and all this might and has done all of these incredibly destructive things and terrible things, and he's portrayed as coming out of his bedroom worried about a dream. And dreams were things that would have been revelatory for the Babylonians. But he's portrayed as filled with all of this anxiety because he doesn't know what his dream means. He has all of this extreme violence when his interpreters can't interpret it. He wants to get them to tell him the dream, tell him the dream first and then interpret it, which they can't do. And so he makes this ridiculous decree that he's going to kill off all of his advisors and all of his counselors and all those who are supposed to be interpreting what's going on in the kingdom. What does this sign mean? What does this omen mean? 
How can we defeat the next enemy? And he says, you guys can't tell me my dream and its interpretation. I'm going to kill all of you. <laughs> so he's totally out of control. This supposed great king. He's violent. He's dangerous. He's trying to manipulate their understanding of the gods, right? Their understanding of how to interpret uh, spirituality. And of course, he's portrayed as the pride is out of control. The self-reliance is out of control. We should be able to laugh at the character of this guy. And again, thinking about what incredible comfort this should give if we can laugh. Because if we're the ones in exile, this power is being totally unmasked. The power is being unmasked at every point in this narrative. The whole point of the dream, we learn, the whole point of the interpretation of the dream, is that the kingdom will not last. And just right here at the start, let me speak real quickly just to the interpretation of the dream. The traditional interpretation is to see these kingdoms, he's prophesying, what kingdoms are going to come next. So you've got Babylon, and then you've got the Persians, and then you've got the Greeks, and then you've got the Romans, and Jesus is the rock. That's sort of the traditional uh, how it maps on. I'm, I'm not actually that convinced that that's what's going on here. I think part of the point is actually to be uh, less specific of who these kingdoms are. Because one, he's trying to comfort those in exile. So why are you going to talk about some kingdom that they don't even know about 500 years later? Rome doesn't fall right as Jesus shows up on the scene. It takes several hundred years for them to fall. I think more of what's going on is when it says kingdom, it can mean like a regime. A new regime is happening. So it seems like he's just talking about the kings that are going to come up, come up after Nebuchadnezzar. And that eventually this Babylonian kingdom will fall, as we know, to Cyrus. So that's my, maybe it's a hot take. I'm pretty convinced that that's what's going on, but I don't think that it either way changes what we should take from this interpretation of the dream, which is that the kingdom of Babylon will not last forever. The kingdom of Babylon will not last forever. This colossus this worldwide kingdom will not laugh forever. And so we should be able to laugh at it. Of course, this worldly human power, we should know it's not going to last forever. Right? No one can stay at the top in this way. No one can handle this kind of, of being on a pedestal. And to take it out of sort of government and, and, and institutions, I, if anybody's been watching this uh, documentary on, the, on Jordan and the Bulls, The Last Dance, it's amazing when Jordan, Michael Jordan's at, at, he's like the icon of icons, has everything. He has won. Best case scenario in the world, Michael Jordan gets it, right? Changes sports. And he says... I didn't, I, if I could do it over again, I wouldn't want to be a role model. Because he knew, 
He knew that the world couldn't handle having a role model. He knew that he couldn't live up to this expectation of being perfect, of being the nice guy, to have everything, to, to you know, be this really friendly and yet superstar athlete because they start tearing him down. That was amazing to me. That even Michael Jordan can't handle this. So he retires twice, all these things. Why do we think that human power is so good? That human strength is something we should really care about. There is a kind of subversive irony that's going on in our narrative. And that's what he's trying to portray as, to get us to laugh. One really interesting thing is the original language of Daniel is not like um, the rest of the Old Testament. It was written in Hebrew. Daniel is written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And this is a chapter where it starts being written in Aramaic is similar to Hebrew, but different. And in verse 4, which we didn't hear read, is where Aramaic starts, and it's when Nebuchadnezzar's advisors start talking. The first thing that we read in Aramaic is this, O king, live forever. That's the first taste that we get of the empire's language. Oh, king, live forever. At the start of this scene, we're going to get this sure and faithful interpretation that we know he will not, and his kingdom will not. Isn't that amazing? And the, the, the drama of this chapter, there's all these things happening, and uh, there's this major threat against the advisors of Nebuchadnezzar, and then it slows down with Daniel. And as we heard it read, you get this sense of like, okay, he's, he's been revealed, but then he prays. He's holding us on to the sort of edge of our seat. It's been revealed, we're told, but he doesn't tell us what it is, and then he prays. And then he holds Nebuchadnezzar and all of his people in the court like on the edge of their seat too. He says, yeah, yeah, I can just set, set up a meeting with, me, with them. I can interpret it. I got this. And, and then you're just waiting, and everyone has their eyes on Daniel. And he gives this long, long speech. First, just introducing who this is. And remember, again, the context. This is a, lo- this is a Hebrew, a Jew, who has just been exiled, whose, whose kingdom has been embarrassed and totally destroyed. And all these artifacts from their temple have been brought to Babylon. And all eyes are on him. Dang. You get this sense that, wow, the power that Nebuchadnezzar thinks he has is vacuous, is relativized. We should be able to laugh. Psalm 2 tells us that God laughs. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? This gets quoted being about Jesus. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
the Lord holds them in derision. There's a scene in Judges, one of the more comical scenes in Judges, is when Ehud confronts this Gentile uh, ruler, Eglon. And we are told Eglon is very fat. And Ehud sneaks a knife in. He's this weird left-handed guy. He sneaks a knife in, stabs him in his gut when he's by himself. We're told, we're told the knife gets stuck because he's so fat. And then he's embarrassed even more because when Ehud leaves, his advisors don't want to go in because they think he's using the restroom. And so the advisors are like waiting outside this king's palace thinking he's just relieving himself. We're supposed to see that it has been unmasked. And in the face of this kind of uh, power, Daniel has incredible, incredible boldness to put it on display like this, to confront him, to confront Nebuchadnezzar and his advisors in this way. And so we should move from laughing to trusting in the divine kingdom. Trusting in the kingdom of God. And I think what that means is basically to be humble. There's a humility in Daniel that we don't want to confuse with modesty. But there's a humility in Daniel and in the kingdom that Daniel uh, is serving that totally depends on God. And that's what makes it humble. That's what makes humility humility. It's about who it depends on. Does it depend on yourself? Does it depend on someone else? Does it depend on some other power? Or does it depend on God? And if it depends on God, then you are going to be humble, but there is a strength in that humility. That's biblical humility. It's strong. Real strength in Scripture is humble. And real humility in Scripture is strong. It's strong in the true sense. It's strong in the, in the fullest sense. And we need to remember that this virtue of humility that seems kind of obvious to a lot of us, or, or um, it wasn't a virtue outside of the biblical world. In Christianity, it, it is exalted as the virtue of virtues, but that's totally countercultural. Because to the ancient Greeks and Romans, it's humiliating. It's the same word. It's humiliating weakness to be humble. Why would you not be humble? Why would you be humble? Why would you not go after what you deserve? Why wouldn't you rely on yourself? Here we see several characteristics of this humble kingdom. One, it's the, the rock, the, the stone that destroys all the other kingdoms is the rock made without human hands. It's repeated a couple times. The kingdom of God has not come by human strength. We see this strength that is humble in Daniel's actions, which seems strange at first because he says immediately, get me a meeting with Nebuchadnezzar 
before he has any revelation at all. Seems to be a kind of serious boldness here. He doesn't know that God's going to reveal it. That's why he goes to his three friends, his three, and we're, told, we're given their Hebrew names in that part. It's like, look, let me show you what the people of God, the Hebrew people of God act like. They depend on God. So we're given the Hebrew names there. And so they go to pray. We need God. We have no other chance at living up to this. As faith, up to facing this, we have to depend on God. We have to go to him. It reminds me of this, this, this strength and this boldness in the Psalms that are incredibly bold in their desperation. Incredibly bold. The, the, the Psalm, the confession of all confession of sins, the most popular one, Psalm 51, is totally, almost not self-forgetful because he's so aware of his sin, but he's so totally desperate in crying out for mercy. He has nowhere else to turn. That's humility and that is strength because he can go somewhere. He can go to the one not made by human hands who he knows will not let him go, will not disappoint him. This kingdom that comes through humility. We are meant to see Nebuchadnezzar as we laugh at him. We are meant to see his power as foolish and as truly weak weak. Can you imagine that? Confronting this kind of worldly power? Now, of course, this kind of humble strength is epitomized, takes on flesh, if you will, in Jesus. And, and Jesus is the better Daniel. In, uh, when Jesus is confronting the religious authorities, he seems to reference this story with Daniel, if you remember the parable of the vineyards, which is an incredibly confrontational parable to give to the Jewish leaders to say, you, you are just killing the prophets of God, and now you're going to kill the Son of God. This is Jesus confronting the Jewish authorities. In Luke 20, it says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Talking about the Pharisees and the religious leaders, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, first, quote, first referring to Psalm 118 and then Daniel, what then is this that is written, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Psalm 118. And then everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The stone that is not made with human hands is Christ. He shows us this incredible humility that is strong, and he faces not only the religious authorities and not only the political authorities in Rome, he, of course, faces sin and death itself. And how does he defeat them? He defeats them by absolute humility and worldly weakness. Worldly weakness is 
is epitomized in Jesus and especially at the cross. Which Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians. And we never need to forget. Please don't forget that the very point, at the very moment when the worldly powers and Satan himself thought they were winning, where they thought their strength was on display, is when they were put to shame, according to Colossians 2. That's when they were put to shame. That's when they were unmasked. When their power was at full force. That's when they lost. They lost by humility and weakness. So, so how much more should we be humbly strong compared to Daniel. Because in comparison to Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is a much greater threat to Daniel and the kingdom of God, as Daniel understood it, than any other threat we face now. Because then, at the time of the Old Covenant, the kingdom was political, national, geographical, and they had just lost it. So it seems like Nebuchadnezzar is this great threat. For those who are in Christ, we know that right now it's not political, it's not physical, it's not national, it's not tied down to these things. So any of those categories or means of strength cannot threaten the kingdom of God that has already come in Christ. So our boldness and our humility should outdo that of Daniel. Because we are facing lesser threats. Jesus has already won. Does that make sense? We can talk about this more during the sermon discussion, of course. But hopefully we can see that this kingdom of God is trustworthy. It's trustworthy. So we can move from laughing to trusting. And then let me just hit what it would mean to act out of these truths. I think, to put it simply, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. But basically, I see a fearless simplicity. I think he is fearlessly simple, and that's what we're called to be. There is a fearlessness in Daniel, because he knows that the kingdom of God relativizes all other kingdoms. And there should be a fearlessness in us. In this case, Daniel ends up receiving the honor and the gifts from Nebuchadnezzar, and he he receives all this great power. That doesn't last. Next chapter, he loses it all. It's almost like we're given, we're given a picture of how relativized it is because at first he climbs the social status and then the very next chapter he loses. So it's kind of like it doesn't really matter. We should be willing to serve, to love our enemies because ultimately the kingdom of God is what we should be obsessed with, not these other kingdoms. And there's, a, I think, a fearlessness because if we... If we were to prioritize the kingdom of God over everything else, if we were to be obsessed with the kingdom of God over everything else, that critique of that mindset would be, oh, so you're just going to let the kingdoms of the world do their thing and you don't care and you're going to let the status quo reign. And that's the major critique from Marx and from many others that says this religion thing, this thing about the kingdom of heaven, is just going to keep people in their place and it's the opiate of the masses. But really, it should be the opposite. It should be the opposite. I don't know what the opposite of opiate and opiate is. I won't go there. But it should be the opposite. 
because now these other kingdoms can't stop you. They can't stop you from doing good and loving your neighbor and loving your enemy. And N.T. Wright, when he's talking about the resurrection, makes this incredible point that says a belief in the bodily resurrection, the Christian hope, does not keep us in our place. It tells us that this kingdom that is transnational and right now not physical will be. It will come fully by sight. And there is nothing that these other threats can do to stop it. Nothing. It's as sure as Jesus has already been raised. It's as sure that he, as he is at the right hand of God that this kingdom is the kingdom. And there is no stopping it. How much more willing should we be to serve, like Daniel in this case, to serve Nebuchadnezzar when he's, not willing, when he's not forcing him to sin? How much more willing in the next chapter should we be willing to lose that power when he does try to force Daniel to sin and worship other things? We should know. America has a feet of clay, guys. I hate to break it to you. Everything, every government, every empire, this is not some radical message. This is basic to the Christian worldview. It has a feet of clay just like human power and human wisdom. In this case, we're not even told it's because of its wickedness, but because it won't last. It simply won't. It will, be, it will be blown, like blown into the wind. Into the wind. Best case scenario for America. It will be blown into the wind. Man, how we get so caught up. How we get so caught up rival kingdoms. So that's what I mean by fearless and being fearlessly simple. Simple meaning focused. Not simple like you don't think. Simple meaning you are devoted to one thing. So what would that mean for you? To be fearlessly and simply devoted to the kingdom of God. Be obsessed with it, if you were. First and foremost, citizens of heaven. What would it do to your politics? It should probably make you less fanatical, less anxious. You know that the media and the candidates themselves even profit when we are more anxious and more fanatical, right? There's a self-interest. They want us to be consumed by them. I think it would make us grieve a lot more. Really to actually understand what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn? Blessed are those who mourn, who weep, who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Self-righteousness has no place in a Christian's life. Makes no sense. Is diametrically opposed. 
we should be able to grieve at our own sin and grieve at the sin around us. Look how lost we are without God. Care less about the world's approval and really be so different from the world. We see the character of Nebuchadnezzar put on display and mocked. What would be the character of a Christian who is fearlessly sinful in their devotion to Christ in living out the fruit of the Spirit and realizing that love is the one thing that lasts? Heaven is described as a place of love. It's easy for us, I think, now to come to this table, to see what Jesus did in being fearlessly devoted to the kingdom of God, not willing to let any other kingdom or any other power or any other sinful use of strength get in his way, confronting anyone who gets in his way, and yet doing that out of absolute humility in the face of total rejection. He doesn't doesn't get the, the power that Daniel gets at the end of this chapter. He faces absolute rejection and absolute poverty and absolute curse. And that's the king of kings. That is your king. That is the type of power and the type of wisdom we should be obsessed with. He reigns now. And if we want to partake in that kingdom, we follow in his steps. We share in his sufferings. And that's life. Because sharing in anything else is ultimately death. Let that get unmasked. Let the the temptations of this worldly power get unmasked. Ask God to unmask it in your heart and in your mind that you would see the glory and the life that is alone in the kingdom of God. Amen. God, do those things. We we need you to work among us We need you to tell us how to even pray and open up our hearts, Lord. We need the spirit. We need the stone that is not made by human hands to remake us, to renew us, to focus us on you and life in your kingdom. Spirit, we ask that you would come among us. In the name of Jesus, amen.